Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. All right, welcome to episode number four of Grow Bud Yourself. Mike, how awesome is it? Episode four. I mean, it's very exciting. We've made it uh, through four episodes. <laughs> we have an amazing show for you guys today. We have Dr. Mitch Earlywine. We have a special guest, hash maker and award winner extraordinaire, Jen Doe. And as usual, a ton of cultivation information and grow your own facts coming up. Stick around. All right. As always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong. Check them out on their socials. Thank you for the wonderful tune. This is episode number four. We've got uh, we're chock full of information today. Yeah, this is a this is a strong episode. If you're yeah, if you're absolutely. just starting with this episode, you've done very well for yourself. Yeah, yeah. We've got uh, a lot of cool uh, giveaways and sponsors and. A lot of great information on this episode. So we should say because we we never actually do uh, that. That I'm Mike G. That's Danny Danko, and this is right. Grow Bud Yourself. So welcome. Right. Yeah, we never even introduce ourselves. I'm <laughs> we Danny. Just expect He's people Mike. know who we are. <laughs> uh, everyone's locked down still. That's the situation. I mean, not much has changed. I think since last week, uh, I moved from the couch to another spot on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to even it out. It's like, you know, rotating your tires, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much where we're at. I think uh, we've got so much other information here. We've got hash stuff. We've got weed stuff. We've got cannabis, uh, you know, CBD, hemp, everything. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we have a really exciting guest to bring on right now. And back when Dan and I uh, worked for that cannabis magazine, he was one of our favorite contributors. He wrote a column called Ask Dr. Mitch, and he has great advice for people. He really understands the science behind cannabis. So we thought it would be a good idea to have him on the show. And uh, what do you say we, we bring him on right now? Yeah, Dr. Mitch, a uh, great guy too, you know, a voice of reason in, uh, in a time of, of lots of non, non-reasonable things. We're thrilled to be joined um, by Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and uh, and Dr. Mitch, for many many years, uh, wrote the column "Ask Dr. Mitch" for High Times, which was a favorite of mine uh, when I worked there. Uh, but he, of course, also is the author of "Understanding Marijuana," which is the uh, Oxford University Press, as well as the Parents' Guide to Marijuana. And you also host a podcast called "Burning Issues" for Cannabis Radio. So thank you for joining us. By, by all means, happy to be here. Yes, clinical uh, psychology professor, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Well, you're, you're classing up the joints, so we appreciate that. Um, so with uh, the Ask Dr. Mitch column uh, that you used to do for High Times, you took questions from readers and gave them a little bit of um, background through science and psychology. So we thought maybe we'd start off with a question that we got uh, from our listeners. Uh, this, this one comes from Marilyn, who, who happens to be my mother. So hi, mom. Um, nice. She writes, since different strains can help with so many ailments, I was wondering if anyone is researching cannabis to see if it can alleviate uh, the symptoms of coronavirus. 
and I'm sure this comes up a lot, right? Coronavirus and cannabis. Uh, what are your thoughts there? To your mom's credit, I'm usually asked, does marijuana make things worse mm. for any kind of respiratory problem? And so it was nice to hear her be so open-minded. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a big fan of the vaporizer, and my lab was one of the first to show that the vaporizer really does decrease respiratory irritation. So if you are you know, using those horrible drug war death toy, little bitty one hitters or anything like that, I would encourage you to invest in a vaporizer. Anything that's going to keep respiratory irritation down is always a plus anytime, but especially while we're worried about respiratory symptoms. There are some preclinical data on CBD and THC suggesting that at least part of one of the areas where the virus gets into the cell is cannabinoid moderated, meaning somehow the presence of cannabinoids may contribute to whether or not the virus can, can get in there, take over, and start replicating itself. But we're way early in this process, and it definitely does not mean, oh, go eat a brownie and you'll be safe. So I just want to make sure everybody is still washing their hands and not counting on cannabis to take care of their symptoms. Nevertheless, the general stress reduction uh, improvement of sleep, enhancement of mood, other things that we know are good for immune function more generally. Obviously, cannabis can improve some of those and in the long run may be beneficial. So if you are somebody who's struggling with getting enough sleep right now, you'd be in very good company. And if you've got a strain that's helpful for that, by all means, a little, little is always the way to go. If your sleep hygiene is good, meaning you, know, you make sure your bed is a cue for sleep and sex and nothing else, you keep your caffeine consumption down from say noon on, and you're you know, making sure you get uh, reasonable exercise, it's, it's a great way to make sure you're getting enough sleep, which should then enhance your immune function, which should then at least help you make the most of your own immunity. So if you are exposed, it's, it's less problematic. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And it's very strain specific as well. So I, I know the stereotype now is that the indicas are for sleep and the sativas are not. That distinction has kind of lost some of its efficacy, shall we say, but at least some strains are sedating by all means go with those some strains are not you don't want to have those anytime near bed and keep that in mind i do have a paper out recently called don't wake and bake and really it's just uh the idea that hey if you're going to do an indica you definitely don't want to do it early in the day because you end up lethargic and feeling bad about how much you get done in a day this notion that cannabis though is some kind of source of amotivational syndrome doesn't really have any empirical support so they say oh the the kids who smoke pot have the lowest grades. And then you look back, they had lower grades when they were in second grade. You know, I mean, just long before cannabis was the issue. Kind of cherry picking the data there, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Dan, you were actually um, on top of that a little bit about how those things are classified with indica and sativa and how it's changing over time. Well, certainly, I think it's kind of a gross oversimplification of uh, a complex, you know, situation where, you know, dozens and dozens of different cannabinoids uh, are present and in different, you know, varying ratios and degrees. And even, you know, when you harvest a plant has an effect on uh, how that plant, you know, if, if a, an er, a plant harvested early as it barely begins to ripen is going to have a, a, a more, you know, uplifting effect. Whereas if you let it go uh, a long time and, and, and the uh, THC converts to CBN and, 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 and you get a more lethargic 
type of feeling from the same exact plant. So uh, the distinctions, of course, are, are, are oversimplified and, you know, the idea that, you know, everything's a hybrid anyway, really. I mean, ultimately, you know, it, it could be just slightly indica dominant or slightly sativa dominant. But again, these are kind of, that's the folklore. And I think, um, you know, the, even, even the same ratio of cannabinoids will affect different people in different ways. You know, I think that's, that's what makes it, you know, I think difficult to quantify. And I think maybe Dr. Mitch could speak, speak to that as well. Absolutely. Part of the issue seems to be when the terpenes are most prevalent, as you allude it, and it's partly genetics and partly uh, environmental contributors. In my lab, we were trying to get at them by administering them one at a time, but we were using vape pens and then all the vape pen insanity came out. And so the lab got shut down on this. But generally, if you look at the aromatherapy literatures, things like limonene, those citrusy uh, scents seem to co-vary with some mild stimulation and decent focus. Uh, lavender, the linalol, one of the other terpenes seems to be more sedating, relaxing, not necessarily as much focus. And we were getting some data at least a little bit consistent with that before, before we had to basically not gather any more data. But I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, because this is such a wild entourage and such an intriguing combination, it's going to be a long time before we have it all worked out the way some folks have fantasized about, oh, just dialing in this kind of high. And it's an awful lot to expect from a single plant that is supposed to be stimulating and sedating and happy and focused. And, you know, I mean, just like, holy cow, we don't expect this from any other psychoactive <laughs> substance. Man, give, give the plant a break. Right. And, and you spoke about stress reduction as well. And I think almost, almost in all cases, you know, the cannabinoids are, are, are have a, that effect. But what about uh, CBD? Um, have, you, have you done yeah, research into uh, the effects of can cannabidiol? Right before I uh, got your email, actually, my grad student had just sent me these data on at least expectations about CBD with anxiety. And there's a meaningful subset of folks who really swear that CBD takes the edge off their anxious, worried, or ruminative, you know, running the same thought over and over again, periods. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily a placebo effect. At the doses some folks are using, I'm awfully impressed with it. We do see definite declines in anxiety in the lab, but only at like 300 milligram doses, which is often 10 times what you usually get. Uh, in some of the tinctures and things like that. But a lot of folks claim that even at about 30 milligrams, uh, after a few days in a row, they just find themselves markedly more mellow. I'm eager to do the placebo-controlled work, but again, right now I can't get folks in the lab for fear of uh, infecting them. Yeah, it's really put a bit of a damper on all of that. Um, CBD is sort of the, uh, the very it uh, cannabinoid right now, but uh, there are many other aspects to the plant. Uh, you're looking into to several others at this point, right? So we're over 100 molecules that are unique to the plant now, which I find super intriguing. Obviously, THC and CBD are certainly present in high amounts. And THC is definitely the source of uh, some of the more euphoric, magical ideation, trippy uh, experiences. And the others seem to uh, alter that magnitude of the impact. CBD by itself looks like it may be stimulating at first and then sedating maybe an hour later, but again, very uh, dependent upon dose. And this notion that we're going to, you know, do them one at a time is an unfortunate 
uh, byproduct of the empirical approach. So I, I wish I could say more about CBN. I uh, love that Danny brought that up because uh, I've had tinctures that were supposedly high in CBN. They were definitely sedating, but so uh, psychotomimetic, so trippy, I, I, I would not be able to recommend them <laughs> with any kind of confidence as uh, something to improve your dream life. You know, So the, the uh, interaction seems to be wild and individual differences are just so vast. So we all know those folks who, you know, there's a strain that they just can't touch or they'll get too painfully self-conscious. Other folks uh, really relish that exact same strain. So I think as we learn more about our own individual cannabinoid nervous systems, we're going to have plenty to learn. Very cool. Well, uh, you know, we could talk to Dr. Mitch all day. All of your, your advice is so fascinating. And I think our listeners are really going to benefit from having your uh, viewpoint here. We should do this again is what I'm saying. I guess. I'd be delighted. Yeah. Give me yes. a call. And let's, let's make sure we get the word out, especially right now. I feel like everybody's kind of in the dark and by themselves and not necessarily got access to the cannabis they want the most. And so I want to just make sure that uh, everybody's getting to benefit as much as possible. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, everybody check Dr. Mitch out on Twitter. You are um, at Mitch Earlywine. My YouTube channel right now actually has all my lectures from my class too, because I got shut down early on. So if you really want to learn a lot about cannabis, the last fifth of my class is all marijuana stuff. So just look me up on YouTube and they're literally, you know, 10 and 20 minute lectures on various topics. You can be quite the expert in, in uh, no time while you're doing your laundry and chopping your vegetables. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, as Mike said, we, we would be honored to have you back uh, um, as a, a recurring segment. Guys, check out uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine on YouTube and uh, Twitter. And yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Bye now. Well, that was that was great. That was really cool to have Mitch on. Yeah, yeah, he's a, a wealth of knowledge and information, and uh, overall great great chap as well. And apparently a very very popular professor. And I know this because <laughs> literally every time I email him, I get an auto reply that says, "Sorry that my class is full. You can't take it. Maybe next year there's a chance you might possibly be able to take it, but probably not." He he must be extremely popular up there in uh, Albany. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had that class when I was in college. Right, yeah. For sure. All right, so thank you to Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Uh, we've got a great show coming up. Stick around, you guys. We've got Gen Doe. We've got tons of grow information. We've got Strain of the Fortnite, Mother Plants, all kinds of stuff. So uh, stick around for Grow Bud Yourself. All right. Mike, how awesome is it? We have one of our oldest sponsors back. It's very exciting. You're, you're talking about BC Northern Lights grow boxes, right? That's right. BC Northern Lights is back, and they have a special promo code. Uh, grow Bud Yourself will get you an upgrade on your nutrients to a higher platform of nutrients worth over 350 bucks uh, with the purchase of any roommate, bloom box, or producer. Now, check out bcnorthernlights.com. These are incredible grow boxes. They're like Rolls Royces. Everything is just dialed in. You can grow in a tiny little space, and everything is automated, touchscreen technology. It's an incredible company. They've been with us for many years. 
Give them a call toll-free at 866-933-3269. That's 866-933-3269. Or check out bcnorthernlights.com. Use that promo code GROWBUDYOURSELF. Tell them you heard about their grow boxes on our show, BCNL. Shout out to the boys. All right, we are back, and uh, we have the honor and the privilege of having a award-winning hash maker on the show with us. Welcome to, to Grow Bud Yourself, Jen Doe. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, um, I mentioned that you've you've uh, won some awards. You're actually the only uh, woman to to win the hash award with. Uh, plants that you grew. So basically you grew the plants and extracted the hash with which you won a cannabis cup. Is that correct? That is correct. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. But uh, first take me back um, to sort of the origins of of Gendo. Um, Where did you grow up and and talk about your like early, earliest experiences with cannabis? Well, I grew up primarily in Utah. Uh, moved around a lot, lived a couple different places, but Utah is where I call home. Um, obviously there it's highly illegal. So it's uh, all underground when I was a kid and it was all very exciting to kind of be a kid in that scene and have that secrecy of it, you know. Um, my parents used to smoke weed, but they would lie to me about it. So that's kind of where I discovered cannabis. Uh, it was kind of like getting on to their little secret. And I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, watching them still be able to function and kind of putting together myself, like the state says that this is illegal. It's a drug. It's bad. Um, but, you know, when you see other people that are partaking, especially like the parents or parents, friends, and they're successful and, you can't tell whether they've smoked or not. Like, it made me kind of curious. Uh, so I first started smoking weed when I was about, I think I was about 14. Um, I didn't realize that it was a medicinal thing uh, until I started really evaluating, like, what it was doing for me. It wasn't just getting me high. It was addressing a lot of the issues that I had growing up as far as different stresses or traumas that I had gone through. Um, ADD, uh, all sorts of different ailments that I had as a child. Uh, When I started smoking weed, I started noticing a really huge improvement to my mood, uh, my motivation, my ability to cope with things. Um, And so I knew there was something to it, and I just fell in love in the very beginning. So... And so how does hash come into the picture? Uh, because you're known basically uh, in, uh, in a lot of ways for solventless hash. And so how did, how did that first come about? Well, uh, when I was in Utah, we didn't have access to much hash. Um, when we did, it was the bricked old school. You know, we would get the hash coins that came through. And I started putting together like the information of, wait a minute, so this is the strongest parts of the cannabis? Like, I want that. So originally, I started by making old school press tash. Um, 
nobody else wanted it but me it seemed like uh and so i had an old friend that he ended up teaching me how to make just old school pressed hash from keep and whatnot you just get these phenomenal patties of hash well when i moved to washington uh that's when bho started being a large part of the industry and so originally i started with bho um, this was like pre closed loop systems and, you know, pre knowledge of anything. And so, so you were blasting tubes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was <laughs> blasting tubes at first, um, back in the day. And as soon as the closed loop systems came together, uh, the group that I was working with got a closed loop extraction machine and decided that they were going to enter cannabis cup with it. Um, but when we got that machine, I was so excited to learn and how to use it and participate. And honestly, I kind of got shoved out by all the guys. Like they didn't want me there to learn and they, you know, would kind of look at me like, why are you even here? And so that was really frustrating because, you know, I had all this information and all these ways that I could contribute to the hash making process, but they were just really not interested in having any of my opinions, any of my help, no hands-on. And that was really frustrating to me. And so I decided after doing a bunch of research and I saw a bunch of solventless hash coming through my social media because it was just kind of the beginning of, you know, the, the full melt era, I guess we can say. And so when I researched that and found out that I could make that just with ice water and that it took very limited resources for me to be able to accomplish that kind of extraction, um, in addition to the fact that it was a lot safer, didn't have to worry about blowing anything up, um, you know, it was a no-brainer. So after the boys kind of pushed me out, I decided that I was going to start making water hash. So I did weeks of research and just watched everything that I absolutely could. And I had my own garden and my own weed to play with. And so I started making water hash. And uh, previous to that, I had zero experience with full melt. Like I'd never seen it. I'd never smoked it. I didn't even realize that it was an option to be able to make that. So when I stumbled across this little mystery to me and found out that I could make hash that was in my opinion, a lot stronger and a lot better and a lot more what I was going for, which was like full plant medicinal value, um, as well as just the aesthetics because it's beautiful. Uh, I just fell in love and kind of started from there and was self-taught other than uh, tutorials and you know any talks that anybody that was starting to make it, I would follow them. Um, I was pretty lucky and I had a lot of uh, a lot of people reach out to me and try and give me tips or tricks or anything like that. And uh, I think working with my own genetics and my own flowers really kind of gave me the ability to be able to do that because it's really hard to make hash for somebody else when you're just learning because there's all that pressure of like, what if I mess up this person's weed? And so, yeah, I, uh, I had kind of a foot in with having my own garden. And so I would just slip in a couple extra plants every run that I, I would be like, okay, if these, even if these went to trash, like it's fine. Um, but they didn't, 
like they turned out phenomenal as hash and i just kept going and yeah i still do so uh and one of the things that's interesting is that you like you said you were committing whole plants to hash making rather than you know traditionally people would be using the trim you know the sugar leaf and things that they trimmed off of their buds and they would use that instead you were using whole buds is that correct yeah i when i was young and like i said i kind of started like realizing about hash i was like okay so this is the actual part of the plant that is giving us all of the effects why then would i keep the best parts of those plants out of the hash it seemed to me like it was really important to put those really beautiful nugs in there that a lot of people keep for their flower, you know, um, just for medicinal quality alone, like the best of the plant is right at the top. So I wanted that to be able to go into my hash as well. So yeah, I would take whole plants and just process the entire thing. So who were some of the people that you learned hash making, you know, from? Well, I went on YouTube and I just searched like hash making or, water hash or bubble hash so um sub cool was very large into that first movement uh of putting the information out there and you know making a lot of stuff available um nicotine was putting a little bit of information available as well um i pulled some different things from some of matt rise's videos um and those those three were primarily the the hash makers at that point in time that were actually allowing that information into the public. Um, so yeah, hands-on and a lot of research, whether it be articles or YouTube videos. And basically what I did is I just picked bits and pieces from everything that I found and put it together in a way that made sense for me. And then when I would add in the hands-on experience with that, um, I'm pretty blessed to be able to catch on to things really quick and, uh, so as I was making it, it only took me a couple of runs to start understanding and then knowing where I could actually add in my techniques to improve on, you know, my ability to make my product what I wanted it to be. Right. So amazing. It was, so it was 2014, I believe, where you won your cup uh, for Solventless Ash. Is that correct? And what was that feeling like? I mean, having your name announced as the winner in a very, uh, you know, tough category to win in. Um, what, what, describe that uh, that experience a little bit. Terrifying, I would say. <laughs> Terrifying. I originally had zero intentions of entering any competitions and whatnot. The reason that I kind of did in the end was uh, the team that I was working with, they very much so wanted to enter the competitions and show off their stuff. Um, I more so did it just as kind of my tribute and my thank you to High Times uh, for really being the only source that I had growing up to find any information about cannabis. Um, in Utah, we weren't really able to like go online and find information because we were all convinced that they would watch our servers and show up at our door and start asking questions because we started asking questions about weed. So having the ability to be able to make this entry for high times, really like I had, I had zero expectations of even placing. 
Um, I didn't, I didn't even have any idea that I would have the experience that I did. My team at the time wasn't exactly a team for me. You know, they, they criticized me the whole time I was making it, the whole time that I was putting in all of this effort as they were scrambling to make their entries. And I was just doing my own thing in the background, uh, you know. And so when I entered, I, I was really kind of nervous because it was also the Northern California Cup, and that's where a lot of the prominent solventless hash makers were. Like, that was, that was one of the hardest areas to be able to enter. So, like, when I entered and mentioned that I entered, I got, I got so many people that reached out to me, and they were like, you're just wasting your product. You're going to lose. There are all these other amazing hash makers, like, but okay. And so when I, uh, when I entered it, like that, that couple days at the Cannabis Cup, just waiting for these announcements was just nerve wracking as can be. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. So when my name was called, I, I, I'm still just like, if I revisit that moment, I'm almost just speechless because I was just like, oh my God. Everybody told me, you're the underdog. There's no chance. Like, you're going to lose. Why are you doing this? And so to, to like, when I entered the, the awards before everything was announced, I had someone pull me aside and they were like, we heard that a girl from Washington won an award for hash. And that just sent me into a spiral of like, why are you doing this? Like, are you mocking me? Like, are you just getting my hopes up? Like, there's no way. So when my name was called, yeah, I was, I was just almost speechless and in so much shock. And just, it's, it was, I had no expectations of being able to do that. So to walk away with a first place cup and then to be told that I was the first woman in the world to do a single source entry and win, I was just, I felt so honored and just, I don't think I've ever been more proud of myself because of all of the opposition that I got when I was entering. So to be able to walk away with that award and be like, yep, I did that. It was, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, really. I think especially just the notoriety, it's kind of like, it was proof that I could do it. And it was reason for people to reach out to me for advice rather than just discounting what I had to say. Right. So, right. yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, okay. So take us through the process of creating award-winning hash. Like, let's just say, obviously, you know, you have to grow great flour, um, which you do as well. Um, Thank you. But assuming you've done that and you have uh, your amazing flour and you want to turn it into uh, some you know, incredible solventless hash, take, take us through that process. There's a couple different processes and I've kind of evolved over time. Um, it's really nice to start bottom level and not have all the equipment that you necessarily need. Uh, because a lot of people out there that are interested in making this kind of hash because they can't really afford to buy it, but they have material that they would like to create it. Um, there's basic level to doing it, and then there's a little bit more advanced level, and then there's like the advanced, advanced level. 
So when I first started, uh, the the first couple batches of hash that I made, it was winter. I did it in my garage. Um, In order to keep it really cold, uh, I had a big slab of marble that I left outside to freeze. So the first batch I ever did, I... I did it on that piece of marble so that that hash would hit the, hit the marble and it would stay cold. Um, and I noticed that I had a lot of success with color with that because if I, if I kept it cold enough, it would stay a really light color. Um, so after doing that, I evolved a little bit more and I started doing more production as I got a little more confident. Um, that's when I invested in baking racks and a 20 gallon uh, machine and, nicer set of bags. Um, But to start, like harvesting that weed is one of the key components. Not only is growing it correctly, uh, making sure that you have the correct strains that are going to produce the full melt because not all strains are created equal. Um, So making sure that I had the genetics on point was number one. And then knowing how and when to harvest those is also a very large point because you're going to get different outcomes. Uh, so once I've got all that in place, I usually harvest it all myself and very careful to not mess up any of the trichomes, take off any of the burnt tips, any of the brown leaves, basically anything that people can do to create less contaminant is going to help your final product. Um, when there is contaminant in there, you can get it out, but it takes a lot longer. And sometimes it can't all come out. So you end up with not as clean of a product. Uh, but once I do that, I freeze it directly. Um, I've done fresh frozen and dry. And honestly, you can make great hash with both. It just depends on, like if you're using dry flowers, it depends on the quality of the drying on those good genetics. If somebody does a quick flash dry, you're going to lose a lot of terpenes. You're going to lose a lot of melt. Um, So it's really important to make sure that you're handling your weed correctly previous to making it into melt. So my favorite and kind of my specialty is fresh frozen. Um, I like a challenge. So when I was able to use fresh plants and you know, that was a lot more challenging because it just, it doesn't just come out as like beach sand. It's sticky and it's finicky and it wants to be handled in certain ways. Um, So I figured out the whole process of doing that. And the key component to that is just keeping everything as cold as you can. If those trichomes start to thaw out whatsoever, that's when you start running into problems. So keep everything cold. Uh, everything, your spoon, your sieve, your microplane, your trays, or whatever it is that you are going to be separating your hash onto. Um, Everything needs to be very cold and very sanitary to start. After that, uh, I fill my washer or, you know, I've used a bucket and done the hand stir method, but honestly, when you're doing it solo, like that's a lot of work on your back, especially after you're looking at the entire process together of having to separate each of these bags and shaking out the water. Um, So I prefer a washing machine just to cut out a little bit of the arm work and whatnot. Um, But you kind of need to just learn your cannabis. So when you, when you add your cannabis to the ice water, 
Um, I like to use a filtration bag, like a wash bag, so that it's easier cleanup. Um, and you just kind of have to watch it. You know, you got to be gentle with it. You can't rush it. You need patience and you need to be very precise about everything that you do. Um, so once I run it through the wash, I pull my bags and start going through the different bags to see, uh, you know, what kind of quality that that exact strain is going to give me. Um, I use a pump sprayer usually or, you know, a hose hooked up to my RO so that I can wash it really well. But you want to spray your heads really well because that is giving you the ability to clean out any of the contaminants. Um, and you really want to work those bags. Like a lot of people think you just spray it and leave it to drain. And that's not going to work. Like it, it takes a lot of work to work your bags and shake them and keep that hash moving around so that those contaminants that you're trying to separate from the hash are actually pushed through the different micron bags so that you're left with only clean heads. So that takes a lot of practice. I think that's where a lot of people maybe are lacking in being able to get the quality that they're looking for is that they are not rinsing it well enough. They, they are either too rough with it or they're too delicate with it. So once you find that good balance and you're able to figure out how the resin reacts in the water and how it reacts in the bags and how to identify where your contaminants are, where they go, how to get them out or, you know, all of that. Um, that's, a, that's probably one of the hardest parts to come up with the clarity that you're looking for. Um, so after I do that, I'll pull each bag and I wick them. Um, usually I'll just have like a bucket with a towel or something dry and place the bag on that. And that'll pull out a lot of that moisture. But previous to doing that, people also are kind of, and this is for air dried. I know people out there that are making rosin with freeze dryers. It's kind of a completely different process. Um, but for doing the bags by hand and doing it for full melt um, and air dried, it's very, very important to get those contaminants out because there is no secondary filtration process like pressing it through a rosin bag. So it's important to get it right the first time. So. Uh, I work those bags until I can get a lot of the moisture out of the middle of the patty. And I think that's also another mistake that people make is that they pull it too soon before there's enough moisture out uh, through the entire consistency of the hash. Um, and they'll leave too much water right in the middle. And so what happens is when you pull those bags and you're allowing it to wick more moisture out after you, after you spoon it out of the bags, uh, I've noticed that if I haven't worked my bags enough, it'll get sticky around the edges and still be wet in the middle. So I'll have portions that are too dry, portions that are too wet, and the inconsistencies with that make it almost impossible to be able to get a good consistent product. So once you figure that out, uh, which takes just some practice and paying attention to what you're doing, um, after that, I prefer to sieve rather than microplane. Um, it takes a lot more skill to do that. It also takes a lot of recognizing exactly what I was just talking about, which is what state is your patty of hash that you just washed? Like what state is that in? Is it 
just the perfect amount of dry that it will be able to go through a sieve or is it too wet or too dry? If it's too wet or too dry, it's too sticky and you can't push it through a metal mesh screen without it just turning to mush. Um, so that takes a lot of practice to learn that. But once I get the consistency and put it through the sieve, I do a super thin layer on parchment paper. And my favorite is using baker's drying racks because you're able to get the spread on the hash that you need. If you put too much hash onto one tray or one area or it's not separated enough, that's where people start to see the oxidization. Um, you start to see it turning darker, not drying properly. You're just not getting the product that you need. And a lot of that is the separation. And beyond that, just understanding how much you can pile onto one tray before you're losing the quality. Uh, so after I do that, I typically let it dry. Back in the day when I started, everybody was thinking you needed to let your hash dry for 10 to 14 days. Well, that didn't make any sense to me because I've never had a drop of water that has sat in one spot for 10 to 14 days. So if what you're trying to do is get the water out, then you just need to leave it to dry long enough to get that water out and then a little bit extra to add a little stability. So I typically, depending on the strain and depending on how well it's separated, I will let it dry in a, typically about a 45 degree, 45 to 50 degree room is really what I shoot for for the greasier strains. Um, and usually about 40 to 50% humidity. So you're not pulling too much out too quickly because after that, I feel like you're just sacrificing a lot of the terpenes and the oils that we're trying to preserve. So after it dries, uh, I typically collect it and uh, just scrape it up into a pile. And then I like to do basically a double sieve. So I sieve it the first time when I'm separating it. But then once it's finished and I scrape it up, I like to do a secondary sieve where I will put the dry product back through my sieve, cold sieve, just so nobody makes the mistake, uh, put it back through my sieve. And all of a sudden I have this pile of beautiful uniform trichome heads um, that are just perfect and ready to, ready to package. And people should store those in a cold place as well, right? I mean, definitely don't want to keep that in your pocket or like you know on top of the fridge or something correct yeah and even when you're packaging those you need to package those in the cold room which is something that a lot of people don't understand once you remove it from that cold it's going to start to heat up and depending on the the consistency of this the strain like it's either going to grease up in your pocket or it's going to start to oxidize a bit with the heat um but that's what we're trying to avoid. Uh, another big thing that I think that a lot of people miss out on is before you package those, you need to make sure that your packaging is also cold. So if you're in a cold room, you can't store your jars outside of that cold room and then bring them into the cold room and automatically put your hash in those. Not only is the hash gonna hit that warmer surface and automatically melt because you've got such fine particles, um, but in addition to that, with the temperature change, you also have the condensation that's going to start on the inside of that jar. 
once that happens, it, it adds moisture to your product and that's where you'll see oxidized hash or moldy hash or things like that. Right. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking us through your process and teaching us a little bit about uh, your uh, origin story and all of that. Let people know where they can follow Jendao and, and learn more about farming and making their own hash. Sure. Um, on Instagram, it's J-E-N-N-D-O-E-420. -E um, and on Facebook, it's Jendo Hendricks. Mainly, I post things to Instagram. Um, and coming up sometime in the near future, I'm going to be working on some different tutorials and a possible website to help with the education, kind of to focus on the the newer growers and the newer hash makers. My passion lies with the people that want to be able to utilize this product, but don't really have the money to be able to go out and just buy it. But they do have a way to be able to grow their own cannabis and produce it themselves. And so I'd like to start doing some different tutorial videos and take people through that. So when that information is available, I'll, I'll definitely be dropping that on my Instagram. Right on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jendo, for coming on to uh, Grow Bud Yourself. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, and awesome having you. Uh, we will be back with more Grow Bud Yourself after these messages. All right. Shout out to sponsor Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. That's Sweet s-u-i-t-e sweet leaf plant nutrients um, check out their website sweetleaf.com they've got organic fertilizers and amendments uh, hydroponic and synthetic fertilizers all kinds of greenhouse and gardening supplies uh, smell proof duffel bags but their iconic line is the sweet leaf line of nutrients uh, sweet bloom sweet finish incredible line of newts uh, really amazing. It's a company that I stand behind as well. If you use code DANKO15, you get 15% off of anything on sweetleaf.com. So check them out. There's a full-on starter pack. So if you're just interested and curious about the newts, there's a special sale right now, $59.99 plus that 15% off um, if you use code DANKO15. All right, we are back, and uh, I think this is our cultivation segment. Cultivation time. That was a great interview with Jen Doe. We appreciate her coming on the show. Yeah, she's rad. She's awesome. So thank yep. you to her. So um, it's been a my, fortnight. Yeah, my inner clock is saying it's been about a fortnight, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, uh, strain of the fortnight. Um, yeah, and the strain of the fortnight this, uh, this fortnight is Dosey Dose. Uh, this is a strain that made a lot of noise a couple of years ago um, and is still making noise now. It's from Archive Seed Bank. You can check them out uh, at Archive Seed Bank uh, on Instagram. And the lineage is it's uh, the OJKB cut of Girl Scout cookies crossed with uh, Face Off OG BX1. And this, uh, this, Basically, I got to give credit to Caesar as well, uh, the homie uh, from Dark Horse, T.H. Uh, Caesar, because he helped uh, with this write-up as well. Um, but the flowering time of the do, -si -do is eight to nine weeks. Um, 
Fletch uh, from Archive Seed Bank. I think he prefers to let it go the eight, the full nine weeks, but you can take it down early, particularly if you're making hash out of it. Um, super greasy strain. Um, it's one of the first OG Kush Breath crosses that's available in seed form. Uh, when it first came out, it was like $900 for a pack of seeds. So, um, you know, it had a lot of hype, but that hype uh, was for good reason because there's incredible bag appeal, really intoxicating aroma. Um, Caesar describes it as freshly baked lemon curd and mint pastry with a sugary, doughy, shortbread cookie lady fingers undertone. So uh, you can imagine that. <laughs> Uh, the flavor is similar to other Girl Scout cookie strains that are available, um, but there will be some slight differences depending on uh, F1 phenotypes that emerge from those seeds. So if you're growing this out, you're going to get a few different uh, phenos, uh, but all you know, leaning on that Girl Scout cookie side of things. Uh, expect this plant to grow slow uh, with very little stretch, uh, but a high overall quality in resin production. Uh, great to grow if you don't have a lot of space. So people ask me a lot about micro grows and, and, and some really small cabinet grows and things like that. Dositos is actually a pretty decent strain for this. So check it out at Archive Seed Bank. The greasy, uh, freshly baked lemon curd shortbread cookie Dositos. Sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about all those um, those cookies, strains? I love them. You know, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, of course, they, they, they play a major role in, in, you know, that sort of gassy uh, family of things. I mean, it's definitely, you know, probably not my, my first choice always, but definitely a great strain and a good, good evening time, kind of late evening into the night kind of strain. I like all the uh, the names of the crossbreeds. They just sound like you know, a wonderful bakery list. Or <laughs> yeah, Biscottis and yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was the strain of the fortnight. Uh, very good. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, at this point in the show, we usually do a little grow lecture, a little information for the, the cultivators out there. So, mm -hmm. what would you uh, like this week? I want to talk about mother plants. Uh, a lot, there's a lot of confusion out there. People don't really understand. Uh, what a mother plant is or how to use it or or why you even would need a mother plant um, and how to grow one out. So I want to go into that. Uh, you know, mother plants are the beginning of clones, basically. So if you're going to be grown, growing from clones, you need to have mother plants from which to cut those clones. Uh, this is very important if you're growing indoors because you want that level canopy uh, you want the plants to all be, behave the same way, and they won't really do that from seeds. Uh, you know, you're going to have some plants a little bit taller, some plants a little shorter. If you're growing from clone, they're all pretty much going to behave almost exactly the same way uh, because they're replicas of each other. So uh, indoors, it's pretty necessary if you're under lights because you have that footprint. You don't want an, a three-foot-tall plant and a one-foot-tall plant because you won't be able to get as much light to the one footer. Um, you want this plant always to be a female. I prefer starting with regular seeds to grow out a mother plant. Uh, but then you're faced with, uh, the conundrum of how do I know if this is a male or a female plant? And I'm going to explain how you do that as well without even flowering the plant. This is a interesting technique, uh, but it gives you an idea of what that mother plant is without actually flowering the mother plant. So 
what a mother plant is, is a, is a plant that is just held in its vegetative stage. It's not flowering. It's staying in the vegetative stage, growing leaves, growing branches, uh, and fresh new shoots, but never forming flowers. Um, so in order to start a mother plant, it's the same as starting any other plant. You plant seeds. Uh, you just have to keep very meticulous notes. So seed A uh, is plant A. Seed B is plant B. And you grow out. So let's say you start with a 10-pack. You know, I recommend starting with more. But uh, if all you have is, you know, a 10-pack of seeds and they're regular F1 hybrids, you're going to probably get about 50-50 males to females. So let's say you have 10 seedlings. Each one is labeled, you know, 1 through 10, let's say. Uh, now, once those plants are a certain size, I would say 6 to eight inches or so with three sets of leaves at least, you can take a cutting of those plants. So you take a cutting of the plant and you root that cutting and you call that, you know, plant one, cutting one, plant two, cutting two. And the cutting, it's gonna tell you what the plant is, right? So you root the cutting and you flower the cutting and that'll tell you if it's a male or a female. And it'll give you an idea of what the, you know, the, the phenotype is as well. You'll get a tiny little, you know, flower, um, that'll give you an idea of the smell. It'll give you a little bit of an idea of, of, of you know, the the formate the bud formation and the uh, the you know flower size that you're going to get. Whatever it is that are your your determining characteristics. For me, you know, it's flavor and terpene profile. So, you know, you're going to flower those clones out, and then you're going to rub the clones, and you're going to decide, okay, you know. Get rid of plants, you know, five, three, two, and eight because they're males. Uh, out of plants one, four, you know, seven, and nine uh, that are left behind, these are all females. And then you, from those, you choose your preferred female. Uh, and that plant that corresponds to that cutting is now your mother plant. It's it's in the still in the vegetative stage. It's never flowered. The cutting has flowered and told you what the plant is. Now. That plant is your mother plant from which you're taking the clones that you're going to be growing out. All you have to do is make sure it's a female, not a hermaphrodite, and it's your chosen flavor, flavor, terpene profile, whatever it is that you're choosing for. To keep the mother plant alive, you don't need a super powerful grow light. I mean, it's a kind of a waste, to be honest, because you're only going to be taking cuttings from this plant, you know, ideally if you're a home grower, uh, you know, once every three or four months. So... You want that plant not to like be growing tremendously fast and, and huge and quickly. So a fluorescent light, compact fluorescent, an LED, something like that. You really don't need high pressure sodium or metal halide lighting uh, for a home grow for to keep mother plants alive. Um, you know, a decent sized container so the roots have lots of room. Uh, you know, water it like you would water normally, you know, every couple of days or so if it's dried out. Uh, don't overwater and, you know, keep it happy and keep it alive. And you can take cuttings from that plant for many, many years. I mean, I've had mother plants last over a decade uh, and they just stayed in their vegetative stage and I just kept taking cuttings. And by the end, they, you know, you get these big bushes, um, you know, eventually you want to retire those and grow out a new mother plant or take a cutting of the mother and make that your new mom. Uh, but Ideally, you know, you have a mother plant for a long period of time. You get a bunch of harvests out of that mother plant. You get, 
the same strain, the same effect, uh, the same behavior from your plants. And, you know, that's really what it is. And like I said, I've had mom, mother plants. I've, I've seen other people's mother plants that have been alive for 15, 20 years, um, still giving off healthy clones and providing, you know, that consistency that you're after when you're cloning, you know, but it is important if you want to be self-sufficient, uh, eventually to have your own mother plants and, um, that's how you do it. All right. Sounds good. It is wild how long those mother plants can live. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, it, it's not hard to keep them alive, uh, but you know, you just want them to be happy because the, the happier the mother plant, the healthier the clones will be ultimately as well. All right. Yeah. And if you find a good mother plant that consistently uh, produces, you want to keep her alive. So uh, that was some good advice. What do you say we move into the uh, the Q&A section of the show? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get some listener questions. Indeed, yes. So if you have a question, um, you can reach us by email. It's info at growbudyourself.com. Also on socials, uh, he's at Danny Danko. I'm uh, at Mike Check G, and the show is at growbudyourself. Also on Patreon, there's lots of ways that you can get us. So uh, let's dive right in. I think you're going to remember this first uh, emailer, Chad Westport. Yeah. Chad. Awesome. Uh, so he writes, Hola, Batman and Robin, or as most of you know, Danny and Mike, it's your boy, Chad Westport. Please tell me you haven't forgotten about my call-ins from the previous show. Who else made you an audio salute for episode 100? I'm very glad to hear you uh, back behind the mic. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So he actually has a grow question. He writes, uh, does tobacco mosaic virus, TMV, uh, live on in the seed from an infected plant? Is it systemic in that sense? I've learned much about the transmission from clone to clone, but have yet to find anything science-related that is conclusive about seeds. I'm curious because I think I see it, a discoloration on the leaves, um, on an Afghani number one in a sterile, uncompromised environment. Uh, he also says, super stoked you're back on the air, and thanks again for your time. So so what do you think? Uh, TMV, what do you know about that for seeds? Yeah, um, tobacco mosaic virus, uh, it's awful and it's pretty systemic. Uh, it's also known as tomato uh, mosaic virus as well because it attacks uh, those plants also. And in both tobacco and tomato plants, it has been transmitted uh, through seed. So, it you know, it can be in the hull of the seed. It can be on the outside uh, and it, uh, it can it can it can remain dormant. Uh, for long periods of time, particularly in dry situations, um, hot and dry. So yeah, uh, it's really, it's awful. And sometimes you just need to, you know, get rid of everything and start over in some cases, uh, sad as that is to say, or find varieties that are resistant to, uh, TMV as well. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one because like I said, it is systemic and, uh, it does come from tobacco and, and tomatoes and does attack cannabis as well. Uh, looks like basically just this overall browning uh, situation and, and often get, does get misdiagnosed. Uh, but yes, I do believe it can. Obviously, it can travel through clones. Uh, but again, it, it's also been known to do from seeds uh, in tobacco and in uh, tomatoes. I, I don't know for sure about cannabis, but I would assume... I would assume the worst for sure. All right. Thank well, you thank for the kind words and all of the support. Uh, we love our listeners and, and uh, you're one of the biggest fans. So thank you. Thanks, Chad. 
Yeah. So thank you, Chad. We hope that helps. And we're, we're working on a way to get people to call in and, and leave some messages for us like you like to, to do on the old show. So hopefully we'll get that going soon. Good to hear from you. Uh, this next one comes from Rezer. He writes, uh, Dear Danny and Mike, greetings from Portugal. Really enjoying the new podcast. I just listened to number three. Um, I'm in lockdown in Portugal, and it started in the middle of March. It was very strict, based on the terrible situation with COVID-19 over in Spain. We're not allowed to leave our local area, and police checks were on a lot of roads. Road and air traffic into Portugal was shut down for anything other than commerce. So, as a result, my lovely lady and I went full-on into growing our own veggies, growing flowers, splitting succulents, and cloning ganja. So that's pretty cool. They're using... The uh, lockdown is a chance to grow a little more. Uh, he has a question. Rezer writes, I'm growing four strains. I have a large male Chiquita banana, which is a few weeks away from pollen production. I want to breed the banana OG Kush with three of my girls, Critical, Cheese, and Critical Widow. But obviously, I don't want the male to pollinate the rest of my outdoor crop. I was thinking of putting the three girls with the big male in a shower cubicle with 12 and 12 HPS light for a week to pollinate the girls without exposing any pollen to my other trees. Will this work or is there a better way? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as long as you're very careful, that will work. You really need to isolate uh, the male and the three females that you want pollinated. I would say, you know, shower is probably not the ideal place. I would put them inside a sealed grow tent uh, together, put the male in the middle. Typically the males are, are taller, um, because they like to drop the pollen onto the females. So you put the tall female, uh, tall male in the middle, three females around the outside there. Um, you can even shake it up. Uh, once, once the pollen starts falling, you can shake that around, um, inside that tent. Uh, but every, everything that gets every grain of pollen that gets out of that tent, uh, has the potential to put seeds into your other plants, uh, into your crop. And this pollen is so light that it's lighter than air. It can fly miles through the air. Uh, if it's windy, uh, if it's, you know, any, if there's any kind of situation where the pollen can, can travel, it will, uh, it'll travel on your clothes and, and all kinds of different situations. So you really have to be very careful. Uh, if you don't want to seed the rest of your outdoor plants, uh, keep that male isolated, uh, especially, you know, once it starts being able to drop pollen. I mean, at that point, you know, any little little bit of pollen that gets to those females will create seeds, and you don't want that. So uh, isolate the male, uh, ideally inside a sealed tent with the, only the females that you want to pollinate. Uh, if there's females outside and you, you, you want to experiment, you can maybe, you know, extract some of that pollen um, from the male. Uh, use a... Um, like a brown bag uh, over a branch of, you know, fill that bag with pollen and use it over just like one branch of an outdoor plant. Um, use a rubber band or something to seal up the bottom of it. And that'll pollinate just that one branch if you're interested. But um, that's how a lot of the old school, you know, Humboldt and Mendocino guys used to create the seeds for the next year. They would just take one, you know, prized plant, uh, the one that you know they wanted to perpetuate into the future and they just put the pollen in a bag around just one branch of that plant and that would become all the seeds that they would need for the next year um and you know you're improving year year upon year you're just improving the quality of the genetics by picking uh and selecting the the, the best you know females to pollinate and um yeah good luck 
Awesome. Thank you. I love that people are listening as far away as Portugal. It's amazing. Yeah, very cool. And thanks for um, keeping us uh, up to date on the uh, quarantine situation over there. And we hope that helps you out, uh, Rezer. Let's go on to uh, Hazy Jay-Z, who writes, What's up, Danny and Mike? Can't thank you enough for returning during the lockdown. Uh, you've given us something to look forward to while living in Groundhog Day day after day. Thank you. I've signed up on Patreon, so that's great. Thank you for doing that, Hazy Jay-Z. I have a couple of questions. First, I have an easy cloner. I was wondering how big should the roots be before transplanting? I grow in soil. I was wondering if the roots should be a couple inches long or if I should wait until they grow into the water. I'm looking to have them set up for the best growth possible. Second, I have some deep purple seeds from TGA. Two of the plants are really crazy looking. I'm not sure if I should keep growing them or if they should be killed. The leaves on these two look like leather. I've never seen anything like this. Is this a sign the plants are defective or is this something good? So what do you think, Dan? Huh. Well, as far as the uh, length of the roots uh, in the Easy Clone, you were right with the, the first thing that you said, the two inches or so. Um, once they're dangling and they're hanging down into the water, they get pretty unwieldy uh, and long, uh, and it becomes a little bit more of a, a, a difficult to transplant them into soil. Uh, you have to dig deeper holes, and there's a little bit more of a traumatic experience that they go through at that point. So I would say once you've seen, you see that the roots are are two inches, two to three inches um, coming out there, uh, you want to plant it uh, into your soil mix uh, very gently and carefully so as not to disturb those roots. Um, you know, dig a nice hole, put the plant in with the roots, backfill and water that in, and those roots will take off. Uh, they're ready to take off at that point. But once they're longer and uh, they, they become more unwieldy and it becomes more difficult for them to recover from that transplantation process. So, um, yeah, try to get them into soil, uh, you know, once they've popped open and they're, are two to three inches or so. Um, as far as the leathery leaves, I've never really heard of that. I'm trying to imagine what that is like, but uh, I don't think it's a good thing. I, I can't see it as being a good thing. So uh, if you can, you probably just sacrifice those plants. They might just be... Uh, some type of weird mutation that they're going through um, and focus your energies on the ones that uh, that are doing good. All right. I like how hopeful he was at the end there. It's, maybe this is something good. What do you think? <laughs> um, but thank you, Hazy Jay-Z. We hope that info helps you out. How about we do one more question? Let's do it. All right. We got one from Nicole, and uh, she's also growing during the lockdown, which is very cool. Uh, Nicole writes, hi there. I've been listening to your podcast. It's really great. You had wondered if the lockdown is prompting people to grow their own weed along with other plants. I live in Brooklyn. I have a medical card, which I don't ever use, and a long-time delivery guy who's great, but I have been trying to grow my own plants while I have this time. However, the seeds I ordered online will not seem to sprout no matter what I do. I've tried the sprouting between two wet paper towels approach, and it has not worked at all. I'm going to just plant these seeds in soil and see if that works, but... I wonder, is it possible I just received dead seeds? I wasn't sure they would work in the first place because obviously it's not legal to buy them in New York, so maybe they just mailed me novelty seeds, even though it was supposed to be a respectable vendor. Thoughts on that? Tips on germination? Uh, thanks. So that was Nicole. Uh, what do you think, Dan? What about these seeds? Yeah, I mean, as far as tips on germination, I actually prefer germinating right into the medium and or the soil or, or whatever that I'm growing in. Uh, I feel like... 
it reduces the uh, you know the possibility of of hurting that tap root uh, when doing the transplantation if you're doing the the wet paper towel method. Um, but uh, there's two possibilities. One is that you got sent uh, bunk seeds, uh, but you say it's a reliable vendor, so that shouldn't be the case. Uh, occasionally, you know, foreign governments or our government will irradiate seeds uh, um, as they are, tr you know, transported from, you know, either it's the Netherlands or the UK or, or Spain or wherever these seeds are coming from. Uh, sometimes, you know, if they're suspected to be uh, live cannabis seeds, they'll go through an irradiation process that that they try where they try to irradiate them and keep them from sprouting. Uh, and make them non-viable. So that's a possibility as well. Uh, typically, you know, if a, a seed is put in a warm, moist situation, it sprouts. Uh, so that it, it's those possibilities. They're either bunk seeds or they were irradiated or you're not germinating them properly. So it's one of those three. It sounds like you are trying to germinate them properly. So more likely they're either... Um, bad seeds or they've been irradiated on their journey to you all right well thank you nicole we hope that helps and thanks to everybody else who wrote us if you are listening to the show and you have a question that you'd like dan to answer on grow bud yourself you could reach us by email that is info at grow bud yourself on socials on patreon just get us the question and we'll answer it on this show uh what do you say we take a little break come back and wrap this up let's do it Grow Bud Yourself is sponsored by Jack Lloyd, Canada's cannabis lawyer. If you need cannabis legal advice, contact Jack Lloyd today. You can reach him by email, info at lloydlawcorporation.ca or on Twitter at Jack Lloyd Lawyer. All right, so we are back, and this is the wrap. We've made it through another episode safely. Chock full of information. I mm. hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you so much, as always, to Jacques and Winstrong for the tune. Um, thank you to our sponsors, uh, BC Northern Lights. Excited to have them back. Uh, Jack Lloyd, Canada's cannabis lawyer. Uh, Vapor.com. Don't forget Vapor.com. Uh, use code GBY at Vapor.com for 15% off everything including you know puffco peaks and everything else um and sweet leaf nutrients sweet leaf nutrients who will be announcing the winner of the grow tent giveaway on our show next week the 28th of may uh there will be an exclusive announcement coming up on our show next week for who won the grow tent package giveaway uh, from Sweetleaf, which is exciting. So thank you to them. Yeah, that's um, really cool. That's a that's a huge uh, prize to win. Absolutely, everything but the seeds. I mean, that's really uh, an amazing package for 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 a lucky winner. Yeah, it's uh, great. They're going to do that announcement on Grow Bud yourself. So we thank Sweetleaf for that. Totally. And, uh, totally. We should also thank just say because you've mentioned it a couple of times, BC Northern Lights. It, it's cool because they were, I think, our first advertiser way way back many years ago, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you gotta, gotta shout out them. I mean, it's an amazing company up there in Vancouver, Canada, um, building these incredible grow boxes. So shout out to BC Northern lights. Thanks for coming back into the fold. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you to all our Patreon patrons. I mean, we're, 
we're getting up there. We've got like a nice, nice, nice group there. Hopefully you guys can join us over there because we've got exclusive content. We've got, uh, we just recently put up uh, some video from the Jorge uh, interview on episode one, a uh, bonus outtake from oh, that. That was, a, that was Kyle. Oh, right. You're right. I'm sorry. Kyle. We put up Kyle from episode one. We put up uh, Jason from Dark Horse and uh, a bonus a video clip from that show and we'll be putting up some Jorge. We'll be putting up uh, some Jendo. We've got a lot of interesting uh, exclusive content that we're going to be putting up on Patreon. And that's really where the community is. That's where you can sign up for our, uh, our quiz show. Right, Mike? Yes. Right. Um, so we're either going to do this next week or the week after, but we're going to do a quiz show where we're going to zoom someone from our Patreon page. So if you're interested in uh, participating in a little um, pot quiz on Grow Bud Yourself, where you can win great prizes that are sitting in um, my home, Dan's home, that kind of thing. Um, please comment under any of the episodes that we're posting in Patreon, and we'll find you and we'll Zoom you, and you could uh, take the pot quiz. So look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to the patrons. In fact, if you there's different levels there. there it starts at $4.20 a month. Uh, but at the $25 a month level, you actually get a free copy of my book signed and shipped uh, directly to you uh, if you're in the United States. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll have to negotiate on, uh, you know, foreign <laughs> type shipments. But um, yeah, that's a perk that you get through Patreon uh, and you can be mentioned on the show. So you know, you get a lot of different perks there and you just get to communicate with us and see extra exclusive stuff that no one else gets to see. So definitely those videos that Dan was mentioning um, earlier, those are like um, bonus content from the interviews that we do. It's like a, an exclusive outtake video. So um, so you're getting that on Patreon and we're, we're about to post uh, some really, really solid audio up there. That's a little teaser, as they say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, You're going to want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so please, if you love the show, if you're a big fan, uh, please support us on patreon.com slash Danny Danko. Thank you uh, to everyone we mentioned. This is episode number four. Thanks, as always, to you, Mike G. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say we put this one in the books. Let's do it. <laughs>